Well, we return. We're in Exodus chapter 23 now, the latter half of what is called, really the last section of what is called the Book of the Covenant. So we started and we saw the law being given to Israel, and it begins with these overarching ten commands, these ten laws, these ten great ethics that govern this people. They represent the character of God. And yet, there's some question, well, how do those get lived out in the nitty-gritty details of daily life? And that's what these commands are about, what's called the Book of the Covenant, these specifics that fall out afterward. And we've run through a number of those laws, but now we're coming to the tail end of that. And at the tail end is really a return to, well, how does this law get lived out? And we see it gets lived out by faith. It gives lived out by a faith in this God who gave us the law, but He's going to equip us to keep it. So we'll get to that in a moment. But as I think about living by faith, and maybe in contrast to fear, this word came to my mind, aerophobia. Aerophobia. This is called or described as an extreme fear of flying. I don't know if any of you have it. I don't seem to. Uh, I do have a fear of falling, however, uh, as I get into an airplane or anywhere up high. Jay, the speed of travel. You know, we went this past summer to visit my in-laws in Washington State. You know, it was one afternoon on an airplane, which would have been a five days drive. Uh, and then you basically, hey, how are you doing? And you turn around for five days more and come home. Uh, that, I'm very thankful for the speed of air travel. But not everybody loves to fly. Uh, this was very apparent to me as a flight I took a couple years ago. I was sitting next to this lady, total stranger, uh, had never met her before in my life, and yet she vice-gripped my arm all of takeoff and during the landing and about hyperventilated in the process. I might say she might be struggling with aerophobia. Uh, and you might ask, well, what is she scared of, really? And I suppose, like anybody would be, falling to her death, you know, is this what the, the fear is? Because as you think about it, which we usually don't when we get in an airplane, but if you think about it, it's pretty astounding what's going on, isn't it? I mean, imagine trying to explain to someone, say, from the revolutionary time period about flying in an airplane. You know, like George Washington, you're going to tell him, okay, what we're going to do, you're going to get into this giant missile, basically, or I don't know how to describe it. It's like a bullet, except you get inside, and it flies at 525 miles an hour. And if that wasn't scare terrifying enough, let's raise it off the ground 35,000 feet at cruising altitude. Let's get in. What do you think? I mean, he's going to think you're nuts. But yet, we do it all the time. Why is that? How is that? We do it all the time such that we don't see the risk about getting in an airplane. I hope I'm not instilling aerophobia, by the way. But why do we, I mean, what are we thinking about when we get on an airplane? I got no leg room again. I wish I was in business class. Or the movies don't work. What's happening to this world these days? That's what we're concerned about. Not that we're 35,000 feet above ground. And if we had to get out, we're in trouble. Why is this? Well, it works like this. Why do we not see the risk or see the danger? Well, it's because we've seen or heard about, or many of us, most of us probably experienced ourselves, countless flights that have safely and faithfully arrived at their destination. It happens all the time. And so we're willing to get screened, prodded, scanned, smushed to get on an airplane. Why? Because the past faithfulness, you might say, gives us the confidence that, well, if I get on this next plane, it's going to be safe, it's going to be okay. 
And in a way, that's what's going on for Israel here as he follows up these last commands because they're on a journey. And we'll see at the end of that text that we read, they're on a journey into the promised land to the place where they will dwell with God in the land of Canaan. And it's not going to be an easy journey. It's going to be difficult. It's going to be challenging. There's going to be obstacles they're going to have to overcome or walk through or get by somehow. And how do you do it? How do you get by? How do you get through? How do you get home? And it's by faith. That's what they're reminded of as we turn to these last laws. How you're going to make it home, you have to make it home by relying on this God. In other words, you must have faith in Him. And just as Israel was heading to the promised land of Canaan, we are in Christ on a way, on a journey, our promised land to go be with God. And as we are with Him in heaven, it's not going to be an easy journey. And you don't have the strength or the fortitude or the resilience to do it on your own. You have to get there by faith. You have to get there by relying on Him to get you there. But the kind of faith, as we'll see in this text, as we take in all of verses 10 to 33, the kind of faith that gets you home looks both ways. And not just both ways to cross the street, but it looks both ways to look backward, and it's a kind of faith that looks forward. And that's what we're going to see as we turn to this text. The word is, keep the faith, really is the command that's coming to Israel and to us this morning. Keep the faith. Do not doubt. Do not qualify His word. Keep it, trust Him, walk in it, follow Him. Keep the faith in His promises about the future. Then how do we do this? This is the underlying principle here that's that's in this text. Keep the faith by remembering, never forgetting past faithfulness. How are you going to make it to the finish line? Because you're going to look back and remember how faithful He was with all the reason to trust Him. So as we turn to the text, that's what we'll see is really the two looks of faith. And the first is this, looking at verses 10 to 19, the kind of faith that gets us home is the kind of faith that looks backward, actually, as maybe unintuitive as that is. You're going to make it forward by looking back, looking back at our God and how faithful He is in what He's done. And so as you look back, thankfulness and further faith stirs up in us. Let's see that in verses 10 to 19. And it begins or becomes evident that this is what God's doing because what God is doing for Israel with these last commands, He's setting up for them a calendar, a course of remembrance. He's setting up in their calendar that they must have times to just stop, to slow down, and to think. They have to have times in their calendar where they have to put down their normal workings, put down their normal doings, and they have to rest. And they have to think, though. They have to reflect They have to look back in history. He's setting up regular scheduled times throughout the week, through the seasons, the seasons of years even. they got to stop and remember and recognize God is faithful, isn't he? And as they remind themselves about his faithfulness, it needs to come out in thankfulness back to him as he's been so good to them. So God's telling us, you need to slow down. You need to reflect. You need to sustain your faith and celebrate what he's done by remembering, by going back. Because if we don't do this, and this is why he established it for Israel, that's why he's established it for his church, you know, the Lord's table, that's our one feast that we have. And what is it all about? It's about remembering. You go back to the cross and tell to the day that he comes, right? That's how it ends in 1 Corinthians. But we have to remember how faithful he's been. That's what's going to carry us to the finish line. Well, let's see it here as we look at verses 10 through 12. We're going to see first this kind of faith that looks back 
rests in God. The kind of faith that looks back will end up resting in God. Look at verse 10. For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. Verse 11, but the seventh year you shall let it rest in life fallow, that the poor of your people may eat and they may leave the beasts of the field, or excuse me, what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. So just note the mercy that's even built into this law even still. It's going to provide for others. The last sentence in verse 11, you shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Verse 12, six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant, woman, and the alien may be refreshed. These are Sabbath commands. And this is nothing new if you've been walking through with us through the book of Exodus, especially the Ten Commandments, because the fourth of the ten was all about the Sabbath. Remember that? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But now, as we turn to verse 10, we see that there is here not only a weekly Sabbath rest, but there is a Sabbath rest that lasts a whole year on the seventh year. That's pretty astounding. You're going to take a break for a whole year. I mean, you thought the school teachers had it great, getting their summers off? How about work for six years, and then you get a whole year off? At first, I'm like, that sounds pretty awesome. Sign me up. But as great as that sounds, that would be really hard. It'd be hard to take a whole year off. What do you mean? That sounds great. Why wouldn't you want to do that? It takes a lot of faith to not work for a whole year and to expect to be provided for. That would be a real test. Because to be clear, you don't get to cycle off on the rest. Like, well, I'll rest this year. And you know, tribe of Benjamin, you can rest next year. Like we do with the eldership. We have sabbaticals and so forth. That's not how it worked in Israel. Everybody's resting all year. Well, who's going to till the field? Nobody. Who's going to provide for us? There is only one who can provide for you. Who's that? The God who watches over them. That's what your faith is going to have to do that year. You're going to have to have the kind of faith that trusts God to provide more than enough that sixth year, right? Then you need the kind of faith that's going to trust God, that's going to make those rations last throughout the whole seventh year. And then you need to trust God that this whole thing of tilling and harvesting, it's going to work well enough the eighth year that you get to eat. To taking a whole year off, this is a big test of faith. Can you do it? What are these Sabbath laws teaching them? It's training them every once a week at least, let alone every few years. You have to look back and remember. you got to look back and say, well, he has been faithful in the past. I can trust he can do it again. You need to look back and take a rest to say, God, you are the provider, not me. That's what the Sabbath is teaching them. And it's true, too, in the Christian life. I mean, really, we could put it this way. Oh, what peace, right? What provision we often forfeit because we're always striving. We're always working. We're never trusting. We're never resting. We think it's all on our shoulders. And so we bear this burden, this constant anxiety. In contrast to the song we all know, Jesus, Jesus, how I trust him, how I've proved him, or and or. What does that mean? That means that I took you at your word to even rest 
and I've rested in you, and you've proved yourself faithful over and over and over again. And the response to that is, Jesus, precious Jesus, oh, for grace to trust him more. But you will never sing that, you will never know that if you don't stop and one, trust. And two, remember back and see how he provides, just like he said. It's a faith that looks back to even rest. It's also a kind of faith that looks back and it worships him exclusively. Let's see this in verse 13. As we look back and remember how faithful he is, I mean, you just have to be drawn in faith to then worship him and worship him alone. That's the implication of verse 13. Pay attention to all that I have said to you. And make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. So they're going to walk through these Sabbaths to say, God, you're my provider. You're the one delivering. You're the one meeting all my needs. You're the one I look to. And if you're the one I look to, I will be devoted to no other one. In other words, God's saying, I'm exclusively devoted to you. You're my people. I don't want to hear anyone other's names on your lips. I don't want to hear about the other gods. They're not providing for you. They're not giving you this food. I am. So be devoted to me exclusively. You know, it's it's like this. You know, your spouse, I'm sure she wouldn't appreciate you always comparing her or ever comparing her to old girlfriends, mentioning their names, or to so-and-so's wife, or to, to some way a coworker does or looks or something like this. And the same goes with God. He's a jealous, committed husband. And he does not want us to confuse or ascribe his good blessings to anyone else or anything else. And for Israel, they would have been tempted to say, oh, well, That nation worships Baal, the false god, and they have their crops, so maybe Baal gave us ours. He's saying, I don't want to hear a word about Baal. I don't want to hear about Molech. I don't know what your week was, but unless you were doing a Bible study, you probably didn't mention Baal or Molech in the last few months even. Yet we have gods that we give credit for things that really are gods alone. And usually, the God that we give all the credit to when we're not giving it to God, can you guess who it is? It's the one that looks you in the mirror. It's you. We take the credit, and we leave God out. And so we do well, self-corrective, to stop, think, and reflect. Who is the one that's ultimately providing for me? It's not your parents. It's not your husband. It's not your employer. It's not even your hard work. Your your daily sustenance you have, it's no credit to how hard you've worked, your special investment strategies, or how you've gained this occupational competence that's led to various raises and promotions within your company and so on and so forth. It is all, every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father in heaven. He's your provider. He's your sustainer. He's the one who gives the daily bread. He's the one, more than this, gives you the daily strength to fight the fight of faith, to fight sin, put it to death, 
and walk in obedience. Don't share then your devotion, your praise, or give the credit anywhere else. Be exclusively devoted to Him. That's faith. It goes back and sees that. It knows that. This kind of faith that looks back is also the kind of faith that looks back to remember. It's the kind of faith that will remember and then so then give thanks. Really, it's the summary of what we've seen. We'll see this in verses 14 through 19. And this gets established with no longer here the Sabbaths per se, but these celebratory feasts. God sets up these three feasts that Israel must have each year as they come before God and worship Him. So look at verse 14. It says, Three times in the year you shall keep a feast to me. Now, even the word three times in the Hebrew, it's not three times, but it's three feats and not distance, but the kind of thing on the bottom of your legs, foots. Why is that? Because you're making a pilgrimage. Three times each male in Israel is going to have to go and appear before God. And when they go and appear before God, what are they going to do with these feasts? Well, they're feasts. They're going to have a party. They're going to go celebrate. You have to go gather around God and rejoice. We'll speak more to that, but that's the idea that's in this feast. And there's three of them. We're going to have to summarize, unfortunately, for time. But the first one mentioned we've already heard about, which is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. He talks about it there in verse 15. We heard about it earlier when Israel came out of Egypt. Remember this? Because they took unleavened bread with them. And why did they do that? So, Rehearsing the story of Israel very briefly, right? They were enslaved in Egypt for 400 plus years. And they were crying out to God, God, deliver us. And it looked like God wasn't going to deliver. And then God showed up. And he showed up in a big way, such that we know the plagues that happened. And eventually, even still, Pharaoh's like, no, 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 I'm not going to let the people go. And then God killed the firstborn sons and delivered his people with the Passover lamb's blood. And then at that point, Israel's begging Israel, or excuse me, the Egyptians are begging Israel to leave. So they have to rush out. And as they rush out, they didn't have their crock pots going. You know, they didn't, oh, let's go on a road trip. We're going to make our nice little sandwiches. No, they didn't have time for that, right? They just had to do fast food. Grab the ancient McDonald's, which was unleavened bread. Bread, you didn't have to wait for it to rise and then to bake it. So they just took it with them. Because God did a supernatural work getting them out of slavery really fast. And so a big part of this feast then is to go back and remember how God delivered them. Notice the end of verse 15. For in it you came out of Egypt in that appointed time, the month of Abib. This is when. So the whole point of the unleavened bread is to have you stop and remember. Remember how God delivered you. The next feast highlights not only does God supernaturally rescue, but he also regularly provides for you. And that comes through this feast around the ordinary means of harvest time. So we looked at verse 16, and we find the feast of harvest, or also known as the feast of first fruits, or later it's going to be called the feast of Pentecost. Look at verse 16. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. So this feast marked the very beginning of a harvest time. And here's how it worked. They, the first wheat that came up, 
they would take it and harvest it, and then the, they present it to the priest, and then the priest waves it before God. And what is he doing? It's a way to acknowledge, God, you are our provider. You are the one who've given this, and so we're giving it back to you, the very first crop, the first fruits. Then they were to count 50 days or seven sevens plus one. That's why we get Pentecost. And then they had this celebration, the Feast of Harvest. And they were celebrating all that God has given, and by that, they were to then give the first fruits all back to God. Why? Because it all came from Him. What are they doing in the feast? They're going back and remembering, God, you are our provider. You're the one who gave us this crop. It wasn't even us doing all the work, so to speak. It's you giving the increase. All the praise goes to Him. And the same really holds for the third feast. Notice the end of verse 16. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, that is the end of the agricultural year, when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. So this feast of ingathering is probably closest to like our Thanksgiving that we celebrate here. It marked the time when all the work was done, all the crops been brought in, all of the olives and grapes have been pressed. What I want to stress for you is they've brought in this harvest. This is a time for celebration. This is a time for rejoicing. In Deuteronomy, as we get like the second law, he rehearses these laws back to them. Notice that God's going to command them to have fun. Like God commands people to have fun. Like enjoy yourselves is what he tells them. Like I've given you an abundance, go enjoy it. Here it is, Deuteronomy 16, verses 14 and 15. You shall rejoice in your feast. You know, many of us treat the Christian life like we're Eeyore walking in here. Oh, I know. Christianity's so hard. Nothing to be happy about. I'm such a loser. Yeah, you're a loser, but your God's not. And that's who we're coming to celebrate. It goes on, so you rejoice in the feast that he's given, though you didn't deserve it. It's the point. Verse 15, for seven days you shall keep the feast to the Lord. You keep it to him because the Lord your God will bless you in all your abundance and in all the work of your hands so that you might altogether be joyful. It's a joyous feast, giving happy glory to God. Because you remember, I didn't deserve this, and it was just heaped on us in abundance. And that's not just Old Testament stuff. Well, yeah, they were a very, you know, fleshly, earthly-focused people, and so we rejoice in heaven, which means we never smile. No, that's not how this works. That hasn't changed in the New Testament. Paul reminds Timothy about this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. He says that God created foods, in context is foods and marriage, but foods there, that God created foods to be received with thanksgiving, by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God, it's good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. God is not a killjoy. He actually delights in things. He thought up coffee. And it is good. Like he is. He thought up my wife's most delicious cheesecake. It is sumptuous. It's way better than that place that has cheesecake in its name. He gives us these good things to delight us. But, get this, what's the point of them? 
They are like crumbs leading you to the source of what's good. That is, these little gifts, they're not just to be taken in and of themselves, are they? They are to actually point you to the source of what is good, which is who? It is Him. So, you love cheesecake, Rick? I thought up cheesecake. And I can delight you all the more. You love coffee? Oh, yeah. And not just the caffeine. Decaf's good. Side story. (laughs) But I thought that up. Because I'm a good God. I'm a good provider. I know how to delight you. Would you trust me in that? Give me thanks for that and trust me. But see, the gifts are not ends of themselves. They're good gifts to remind you of a good giver. So delight in them, enjoy them, but give them thanks right back for them. Again, even for Israel, if they only enjoyed the gifts, they missed the point of them. Because he tells them, he tells them, rejoice in your festivals, but here's what he says. You shall rejoice, you shall keep the feast, but to the Lord. Deuteronomy 16, 14 and 15. You keep the feast, but to him. Why? Because he's the one who gave it. Don't miss him in that. It's really just that classic, don't miss the giver for all the gifts. But have you done that with God lately? Have you missed the giver because you're so focused on the gifts or the gifts you want from him? Or have you just wholly neglected the good that he's actually given you, that he's so faithfully provided for you? And that's rather easy to do. For a couple of reasons. One, when we're so myopically focused on that like one thing we want. You've been there. We see it in our kids. I saw it <laughs> looking back now at me as a child. It's like, oh, I want this thing. But look at all these other good things. No, 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 no. They're nothing. I need that. But that's what we do all the time. Or it's especially hard to be thankful, not only when we're just focused on one thing, but it's really hard when life's not going so great, Right? When something's really hard in our life, say, and you've been praying to God about it, say it's an illness or some struggle against sin or whatever it is, and you're praying, God, take this away. We know this isn't good. And so you start to become frustrated. It's like, you're not listening. When in reality, what's probably happening is that he is still providing for you in all kinds of ways, and you're just failing to see it again because you are so captured by this one thing. You won't even see it, and you won't even choose to, it seems. And frankly, shame on us, me included for sure, that as Christians, that we would be people that grumble, complain, and lack joyful thanks. Especially, because you understand this, right? For those in Christ in here, no matter what you have been or will be walking through in this life, That doesn't change this fact. God set his love on you in eternity past. That he saw your need, so he came down and took on human flesh to walk and live a life you could never live, because otherwise it meant hell for you. And then he didn't deserve it, but he took your sins on himself, if you trust him, to take all the wrath and justice of God. And then he rose from the dead, and he purchased. That's what Ephesians 1 says. If you're in Christ, you have every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And that doesn't change when you get sick. That doesn't change when your heating unit breaks or your car breaks down. And actually, we have the added confidence 
because he's a personal God, personally involved, we have the added confidence that those bad things that are taking place in our life, he is actually superseding them for our good. And we can see that. We can trust him if we can go back and look. If you can look at your situation with an eye of faith. And I hope you've done that. I hope you've like gone back and reflected or do that this afternoon and think, God, what's some challenge in my life or some change that I didn't want and yet you brought so much good from it? Because if you're in Christ, it's there one way or another. And just to give you a small childlike example of my own life, when I was, oh, like seventh grade, I was living in Kansas City, enjoying Kansas City life, which meant great barbecue and great barbecue and great college basketball, by the way, not far away, but that's another story too. I loved Kansas City. I still do, but I loved it there. I had great friends. I had a great time. My family was there, of course. And then I heard that we were having to move to California. And some of you might think that's a good idea, like back in the early 90s, but it wasn't really to me then. I mean, I remember as a child just weeping on our driveway, my my hand between my knees weeping. Uh, they, They could not console me. You know, they're like, Disneyland's nearby. It's like, I didn't, Disneyland was here. This was home. I didn't want to change schools. I didn't want to make new friends. I didn't want to try and fit in and find my way. And none of those things came easy as I went to a new place. So as I heard that, it was tragic news, so to speak, to at least somebody who's in the seventh grade. And yet, if I hadn't moved to California, I wouldn't have met a guy named Chris, whom introduced me to the Lord Jesus Christ, and who brought me, that is, God did, to a Christian college that had a campus in Israel. And I didn't make it when I wanted to go on the trip to Israel. So I got waitlisted, and then I happened to go at another time. And I met this really cute brunette named Aaron Dressel, who later became my wife. And then we were involved in a church, a great church, Grace Community Church. And I met this hokey from Virginia Tech named Rich Ryan who became my disciple and mentor and pastor here at Grace Bible Church, who invited me to come here. But none of that happens if I stay in Kansas. So the tragedy of my life, so to speak, in that moment, that I'm like, God, this is not the good way to go. He is saying, trust me. I can work good in this, way more good than you can ever anticipate. And just set up a whole chain of providences, blessed providences, again, that would never happen if I had gotten my way. Yeah, there were tears, there were challenges, to be sure, but life and faith itself were there. So it's important. Take stock of your life. God's involved in it. Go back, look, and remember. See what's been going on, but look with an eye of faith, of trust. And see what God's been doing. And that'll cause you to give thanks because he's been so faithful. But at the same time, to turn to the next look, it also strengthens your faith for the future. Because when you encounter these challenges, these difficulties, you can know God's still in it. He's still being faithful. So we look back. We see his faithfulness. It causes gratitude. But now we look forward. He is faithful. And so that means we're going to follow him. We'll see that in verses 20 through 33 here. 
Because faith not only looks backwards, it looks forward in all that God has promised in His Word to us. And that is captured in really these three manners or ways of what this kind of faith looks like. What does it mean to believe Him, to follow Him? And in the first place, looking at verses 20 to 22, it means we're going to follow Him closely. We're going to follow His Word very closely. Look at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. Because this is interesting, right? We dealt with the sabbatical laws and we dealt with all of these feasts of harvest and ingathering. You know, it sounds great. God's going to provide, yada, yada. But understand, where is Israel at this point? They're at the foot of Mount Sinai. They don't have any land yet. They haven't planted a seed of anything. This is all future. And so all of these commands about harvesting and so forth, none of that happens if they don't get to the promised land. And so here are his promises about the future. And he's saying, I'm giving you a personal escort to get you there. My angel, another way to translate that, just a messenger. And how is the messenger or angel going to make sure these promises about harvesting and all of that come to pass? Well, note this. He says, he is going to keep your way. He's going to, verse 20, guard you on the way. But how does he lead and how does he guard and how does he keep us on the way? Well, then it says, we'll pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. It says at the end of there, verse 21, for my name is in him. How are you going to stay on the way? How does he guard you and keep you on the way? You listen to what he says. Because this messenger carries the very authority of God, the very word of God. Because notice, even looking to verse 22, when this angel speaks, God speaks. Verse 22, but if you carefully obey his voice, that is the angel's, and do all that I say, God speaking, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. So then we're asking, well, who's this angel? I mean, he's a pretty significant dude or angel, whatever he is. Some have thought this is Moses, right? Or maybe it's Joshua, the one who actually takes him in the promised land. Others suggest, well, it's an angelic being, some messenger from God. And yet this messenger seems to be more than that. We met an angel of the Lord before, didn't we, in this book, in Exodus, who was no mere angel, the angel of the Lord in the burning bush, who was God himself. Suggest to you, he is the second member of the Trinity, the Son of God, coming down, pre-incarnate, that is, before he took on flesh, and leading his people to the place that he's prepared for them. That sound familiar, like our Jesus, who's gone and prepared a place for us? But how does he keep us on the path? How does he keep us on the road? He says, pay careful attention to his word. Life is found. The journey is found as we stay on his path of the word. So we must follow it closely. We also follow God devotedly. Verses 23 through 26. We follow God and his word, looking forward with faith devotedly. God's calling his people into a relationship. And it's a relationship that allows no rivals. 
Again, we use the analogy of marriage. It, it, it doesn't allow you to think about old girlfriends. It's, it's a commitment to one and only. Because here's the challenge. As they're getting ready to go into the promised land, the promised land of Canaan, it's not vacant. People live there. And they're going to fight to the death to have this land. Well, what's to be done about that? Well, the end of verse 23, God promises to blot them out. God's saying, I'm going to fight for you. I'm dedicated to you. I'm going to take care of this. But then in response, I want you dedicated solely to me. Look at verse 24. So you shall not bow down to their gods of the nations you're going to see, nor serve them, nor do as they do. But you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. The the Canaanite nations had these pillars, and this is how they worshiped their so-called gods. And he's telling Israel, you can't leave those up as monuments. And nor are you going to put it in a museum and then all stand around it and go, man, wasn't that interesting that they had these pillars? No, you need to crush that into little pieces. Never even mention it again. Notice why or part of the risk. Look at the end of this chapter, verses 32 and 33. He says, you're not going to make any covenants with them, verse 32, or their gods, and they're not going to dwell in your land, verse 33, because it says at the end, it will surely be a snare to you, something that's going to catch your foot and kill you. It's the iconoclast approach here. Tear it all down. Why? Because it's a snare. The Lord knows your wayward heart. Listen to this similar warning he gives in Deuteronomy chapter 12. This is Deuteronomy 12, 29 and 30. When the Lord God, when the Lord your God cuts off before you the nations, right? Take care that you be not ensnared to follow them after they've been destroyed before you. And do not inquire about their gods, saying, how did these nations serve their gods? You know, they say curiosity killed the cat. Well, curiosity and the other sin will lead you right into it. Whether it's reading, liberalizing progressive books from so-called Christians to try and just quote, oh, I just want to understand their arguments. Or you want to know the details about some sin, some, some murder, some adulterous affair, so you deep dive trying to understand it all. Or whether it's the false ways of worship of some other god or some other cult. It's a snare. Now, I don't mean to imply that there is never a place for trying to understand the other side. But my counsel about all of that is this. Number one, you don't need to study error to recognize truth. And number two, don't overestimate your resilience about being influenced by false teaching. Don't presume it's not impacting you. Don't presume it's not influencing you, giving you this whole alternate world and worldview, the way to look at things. It will warp and pollute your thinking if you're not wholly combating it with the word of truth. So he's saying, don't leave the vestiges of your old life around. Because they will seduce you and snap you and trap you again. In contrast, you shall serve the Lord your God. And then we see as they serve God, how much he's going to bless them with this. Look at the middle of verse 25. 
And he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from you. Verse 26 notes that none of them will miscarry or be barren. They're going to enjoy fullness of days. And it's like, wow, that sounds pretty awesome. Is that how it works today? You know, we've been talking about we're not in this covenant. There's things about our God. Principles are true, but we have a new relationship with God and a new covenant. And this is part of the old covenant. Obey God, He blesses you. Don't obey, you get curses. But we assume, oh, that's how life works still for us. If I really obey God, He'll bless me. Or more often, we reverse the logic and say, well, if something bad happens, I got an illness, uh, something didn't turn out, I must, I must not have enough faith, I must be sinning, something must be messed up. Is that how this works? No. Not in the New Covenant. Health Wealth and prosperity in this life are not promises that Christ holds out for those who trust in Him. Rather, His promises are, you might well lose your life to follow me. Paul, the ultimate follower, maybe, of Jesus, bore the beatings and marks of Christ on his body. You might lose your wealth following after Jesus, giving it away, or as people take it from you and you let them. Why? Because in Hebrews 10 talks about you have a better and remaining inheritance that no one can touch. In the Christian life, our perspective, because our promised land is not the circumstances of this life. So your circumstances on this life, they can maybe not be going so well. But Paul reminds us, even as your outer self is wasting away, 2 Corinthians 4, our inner self is being renewed day by day. Because he says, what's going on for this light, momentary affliction, this life, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, when you get to see your Redeemer face to face, the sorrows of these days will be long gone. But that takes faith to see that. That's our posture. He says, as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So where's your focus? Where is your heart pointed? What's the treasure you're going after? Don't come short of the far greater treasure found in Christ. That's what faith looks like. But as we walk through these, what he describes as light momentary afflictions, they feel not so light or so momentary, especially when they really hurt. So how are we going to get there? The journey's hard. Well, it's true for Israel as well. Their journey was going to be hard. But they weren't expected to get there on their own. Because note this, God personally intervenes and promises to get them home. Pick it up with me in verse 25. Notice all the I wills that are in this text. Verse 25, I will take sickness away from among you. Verse 26, I will fulfill the number of your days. Verse 27, 
I will send my terror before you, and I will throw into confusion all the people against whom you have come, and I will make all your enemies turn their backs. Verse 28, and I will send hornets before you, which will drive out the Hivites, the Canaanites, and the Hittites from before you. Verse 29, and I will drive them out from before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts multiply against you. Verse 30, little by little, I will drive them out from before you until you've increased and possessed the land. Verse 31, and I will set your border from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the wilderness to the Phraates, for I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand. Whose work is this? It's God's work. That's the only way his people come home. But notice the end of verse 31. He says, For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, but note this, and you shall drive them out before you. Oh, wait a minute. So who's going to drive them out? Is it them or is it God? I think we know the answer. I heard it. Yes. It's God's work, yes. But he uses means, and he's going to use your faithful, little, weak, faith-filled steps to do it, to accomplish his will in your life. And actually, entering the promised land is a great Example of this. Because you remember, as they enter the promised land, the first city they took over was Jericho, right? And what did they have to do? They had to walk around Jericho a whole bunch of times. And that somehow made them know the only way we're going to conquer is God doing it. But then as God had them take over the rest of the promised land, is that what God did? Just blew the walls away? No. They had to do it the traditional way. Sword in hand, following God in that mission. But was it any less God working? No, it wasn't. It was God working through them. That's what it means to walk by faith. To say, God, you can work even when I don't have the strength. And that's the kind of road and walk that we have to have. We're going to encounter disappointment on the way home, persecution, health challenges, griefs beyond measure. But there's hope because we have a God who's keeping us all the way. Let me close with this. 1 Peter 3, verses 3 through 5. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Why? Because according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And it's for an inheritance. Look how secure this is. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. But how do I know if I'm going to get there? Well, if you're in Christ, get this. He says, you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. That's why he'll talk about it. You can have inexpressible joy whatever your trial because you know he will keep you. So we're going to make it home if you're in Christ. Not because you have the strength, but because we know he does and we've seen it over and over again before. Let's pray that we would walk in such faith. Let's pray together. Indeed, O Christ, we rest on you, the surety of your promise sealed by the blood of Christ. May our eyes be ever fixed on our Redeemer. So help us lay aside every weight and sin that clings so closely. Help us to run with endurance the race that's set before us, 
though looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and seated at the right hand of God, who we by faith one step at a time will one day be with him there. Do that for your name's sake, we pray. Amen.